Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today we hear from Simon Osborne, and in this interview, we're going to talk about Simon's experience along with Marin Medak paddling in South Korea and all the uniqueness that comes with paddling in that part of the world. We'll also touch on his expedition to Madagascar and his latest project, online sea kayaking. So enjoy today's episode with Simon Osborne. Hi, Simon. Thank you for joining Paddling the Blue today. You're welcome. It's good to be here. Simon, tell us a little bit about your personal paddling background. You've got many fascinating adventures, and I'd love to hear about them, and I'd love to hear about you. Yeah, no problem at all. Well, um, I, I guess I... I really started kayaking quite a few years back when I was just seven years old. Um, I've got my, my dad to thank for that. He um, ran a, a six-form college canoe club. And uh, before I was at the age to be at the college, uh, I'd join in on the college trips and uh, would be going off on weekends doing whitewater kayaking and slalom events and, and got into it from yeah quite a young age, really. So one thing that seems to have popped up with several interviews that I've had, particularly from the UK, is very first paddling experiences being on inflatables. Any uh, any truth there for you? No, not at all. <laughs> I don't, um, in fact, I don't actually know if I've ever been on an inflatable uh, ah, good, uh, good kayak. So, <laughs> but uh, but no, my my um, initial years of kayaking for many years was in um, fiberglass slalom kayaks um, because there was nothing on the market that fit a seven eight year old, and I was quite small for my age as well. Um, all the plastic boats that were out there were kind of rotor bats and they were quite quite big for me. I'd float around inside them. So the only thing we could do was get a custom um, small child's uh, slalom boat. And so I did all the whitewater kayaking in that in the Alps and, uh, and got used to paddling quite a, a dynamic craft from the start, really. So what led you from there to sea kayaking? Well, it's a, unfortunately, I lost my brother Mark to leukemia when um, he was just 13 and I was 11. And I wanted to do something to raise money for charity, um, for, for leukemia research. Um, it's something he asked me to do when I had the opportunity before he passed away. And uh, I wanted to keep that promise. And I thought it was a good idea to use kayaking as a way of raising the money. And uh, first of all, I thought about maybe paddling the length of the longest river, maybe the Nile. But I didn't know how I was going to use that to, to raise money. It was you know quite remote and there was no one to collect money off. Also cost quite a lot to do it. And so I just one one day thought, well, how about if I try to paddle around the outside of Great Britain, which wouldn't cost too much to do, and there's lots of people and harbours and people to raise money off. So I uh, decided that I would I'd give that a go and thought perhaps uh, I needed to do a bit of research and, and learn about taking a kayak on the sea. And that's when I discovered Nigel Dennis had done it in 1980 and thought he'd be the man to talk to. And so I sent him a an email and he said come up and see him and have a chat and then it all went on from there really oh, fantastic so but tell us tell us a little bit about that adventure how, how old were you at the time uh, i was 22 years old um so i just finished university had a had a year a, a year to kind of plan it and to put it all together um i think nige gave me a boat about seven days before i set off so i hadn't really done any sea kayaking i'd, I'd done a week with him up there to train and then just learnt as I went went along. I really didn't know if I'd achieve it when I set off. Um, it was a fairly big undertaking for me at that point. Um, and I kind of slowly gained more experience as I went along. Uh, it took um, four months to complete and I raised £12,000 
uh, for leukemia research by the end of the trip. So I was really happy with how it went. Well, that's impressive. That's impressive. So congratulations and nice way to honor your brother's memory. Yeah, no, I was uh, really pleased that, uh, to complete it and uh, to get, capture so many stories of people affected by cancer as well and to uh, and get all the donations in. Um, yeah, it was really quite a special trip. And so let me make sure I understand that right, too, that you had only been in a sea kayak a few times prior to that and received the boat a week ahead of time and decided to set off on a four-month adventure. <laughs> yeah, I knew that uh, my, my paddle paddling skills were there from the white water, so I, but it, it was mainly the navigation and kind of safety at sea. But I would, I, my intention was to just just to go out with good forecasts and take my time to start with, and and not take on too big a crossings until I was comfortable with that, and and slowly up what I was taking on really. Simon's got quite a rainstorm going on, so we're just going to take a little quick break here and listen to the Cornish coast. So after circumnavigating Great Britain, you went on to circumnavigate Ireland and since then have rode across the Atlantic as well. And so lots of fantastic adventures. Um, today, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your trip to South Korea. So why South Korea? Well, yeah, it was never really on my plan of uh, places to paddle around. But uh, I wrote an article um, uh, about my expedition to Madagascar. And uh, someone called Marin Medak uh, read that article, um, who lived out in Slovenia. And he just thought I'd be someone that he'd like to go paddling with. So he sent me an email saying he was thinking of trying to go around the coast of South Korea. And uh, would I be interested in joining him? I said, well, it's not somewhere I thought about. But I did a bit of research. Looked a very interesting uh, country to paddle. Amazing coastline. No one had ever paddled the whole distance of it before. And it looked like an incredible culture to experience. So I thought, why not? Let's see if it works. And asked Marin to come over. We spent a weekend together, got on really well, and so we started making plans. So what was the distance and number of days for that trip? Well, it, this one wasn't really about massive dif- distances. I mean, it was um, something we were allocating uh, a month to do, so 30 days of paddling. Um, I think it was, off the top of my head, it was about a 1,000 kilometers. And so it was a, a reasonable distance, but uh, it wasn't it wasn't like Grand Britain um, or a, the Madagascar trip. Um, so it was, um, yeah, it was. It looked, it was, seemed a, a reasonably sensible trip to try and take on. So about the experience, uh, as opposed to just putting on miles. Exactly, and, and you know, I, the more I, I get into sea kayaking, the more I realise that, you know, it's a great vessel to to explore a place, and and it seems to break down barriers and and me, it gets you in places and into conversations. If you turn up at a beach in a car. Um, or you know to a town in a car no one really comes and talks to you but you turn up in a boat and land on a slipway and before you know it you know you're into conversations with the locals and it's a it's a great way to experience a country so tell us a little bit a little bit about those conversations you had with folks and people you met along the way yeah sure well i mean we always knew that this was going to be a, a different sort of trip we, we had to make a decision i mean there was obviously problems with the neighbors um in in the north um and we knew that there might be uh, heightened security with us trying to to paddle um, near any of the border with North Korea, and uh, so we weren't sure how to approach this. Um, we were worried about sending an email well in advance to the authorities, for them to just you know the simple thing for them would be to say no, you can't do it, um, and we just that that would be it. Um, so we tried uh, to go with a different risky approach to this. Um, is that we. We sent an email to the biggest club in kayaking club in in the country, 
a few days before we were to arrive, saying that we were coming to try and do the circumnavigation and that we would, uh, you know, uh, seek their uh, help to get the authority once we arrived to, to do the trip. So there was very little time for them to say no. And, um, and that really was the start of the relationships with the, the country and the people. Um, and we got met, met and picked up at the airport by one of the local kayakers and got incredible um, support from them. Um, they took us to the police station to try and get, get the authority. They, they, they managed to seek that for us, really. I don't think we would have got that without their support at all. Um, so, yeah, it was just an amazing start to the trip, really. That's uh, that's quite quite generous of them to help out in that way. Yeah, I think uh, they were keen to see it happen. They, they, you know, there's a good thriving sea kite community out there. You know, no one had gone um, around the coastline, so they thought, wow, this would be brilliant. They they'd seen Justine's "This Is the Sea" videos, so they they, they knew of my, myself on that on those videos, and they, they they were really invested in the trip and wanted to see it happen for the for sea kayaking in South Korea, really. So there's always political tensions over there, and I understand there were some heightened political tension there around the time or prior, just prior to the time you were there? Yeah, it was a couple of months uh, or a month or so just before we got there that um, some rockets had been fired into the sea off the coast of South Korea from the north um, as warning shots, really, um, for heightened um, activity training that was going on in South Korea, in joint exercises with the US, I think. And uh, yeah, so there was there was tensions there. And they, they when we got permission, they, they clearly stated that we couldn't start close to the border. So although we wanted to kayak the entire coastline of South Korea, we couldn't start right on the border with the uh, the back of the kayak um, touching North Korea. They, they, they picked a spot for us on the map where they were happy for us to start from, which was the nearest town really to 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 the, to the North Korea border and we set off from there and uh, we set off on our own with one of the local club um, paddlers joining us on the water which was really nice for the first day but it wasn't long before that changed we had a a, a a very big vessel turn up with guns on it that just sat offshore where we were camping for the night we weren't sure if it was to do anything to do with us but uh, as we started paddling that day it started to then follow us um, at a distance, a mile or so away, and then we stopped for our lunch on the water, and it stopped. And uh, I think that was the point at which we realised that that boat was there for us, and uh, we we were a bit surprised by this. It turned out we would have one of those boats next to us for the rest of the trip. We we had the a uh, yeah a support vessel that uh, was off in the distance for the entire journey around the coastline. It wasn't the same boat. It was different ones. We had about 50, I think it was, different boats for different sections. Sometimes you would have two as they were changing over. But yeah, we had this uh, <laughs> incredible uh, presence for the Marine police uh, on our way around. So did they ever make any connection with you or did they just set offshore the entire time? Yeah, it, it was different for different boats. Some boats, got to, we got to certain areas of water where they would like follow us. Um, and they just sat in front and we had to follow them. Other sections, they were just miles off and had nothing to do with us at all. And then uh, sometimes they, yeah, they would come up and have a chat and take some photographs and wave and uh, ask how we were doing. Uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a real mixture. But uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a completely different aspect of the trip that we, were, we really weren't expecting. Yeah. Now, did you get the sense that they were there to protect you or there to watch you? That's something that we um, really still don't know the answer to um there was a another development that happened on it was a day four that um a uh, a kayaker ends up landing at the beach where we were camped because we had a, a spot tracker so they knew where we were 
um, and he said he was um, Hosin and he was the um, the, the, the kayaking uh, monk and he was going to join us for uh, a week and uh, we said no, that's fine that's brilliant yeah great no problem at all <laughs> um, and uh, he turned out to join us for the rest of the trip um, and we're not we're not exactly sure what happened here, but I think the Marine Police uh, insisted that there was a, uh, a local with us on the water for translations because they were struggling to communicate sometimes with us um, and understand where we were going and what was happening. Um, so this person then became the, uh, the contact point. So we had now her local with us, which was fantastic experience. Uh, he, he opened up even more doors to experiences and more insight into the culture, uh, which was great. But it felt like the, the police were there to, to really make sure that we, we didn't get mistaken for anything, that we, we were perhaps coming in from the north or, or whatever, but there was some protection there for us so that we were protected from them and protected from um yeah from going places where we shouldn't have gone and so on uh, because there are certain sections of coastline which do have a, a primitive fence all the way along them uh, where you can't land um you can only land at the beaches and the, the harbors and the towns um so you know it's a it's they're, they're quite protective of their coastline and um i think they were just making sure that we were going to be okay and there was not going to be any problems so that protection is that essentially protection for the south from the north or something else? I think it's for, from, for the south from the north. Um, I guess there is a risk of uh, the north coming down and, and landing in the night and so on. Um, so they have um, patrols on the beaches and um, they have watchtowers along the coastline um, that are permanently manned. Yeah, it's quite a fortified coast in some ways. Yeah. Mainly, obviously, the close, more close you get to the border. Um, in the sure. south, it, you didn't really feel that at all. But um, yeah, certainly closer to the north. Yeah, it makes you wonder if just a, a chain link fence is really going to stop that. <laughs> yeah, sure. How did the kayaking monk change the trip for you in terms of interactions with people along the way? Uh, we had that police presence on the water um, and every single place we landed, there was police presence there waiting for us to take photos, take notes, say hi, bring us a coffee. And uh, they'd welcome us into the to the police stations in the towns as well, <clears throat> where we could have a shower and, and refresh and restock on water and, and, and anything we needed. And he was able to, you know, communicate and explain to them in detail what we're doing. And it kind of opened doors and we got invited out for, for going for meals in places with uh, people in towns uh, in villages as we stopped. And yeah, just lots of generosity and kindness and uh wonderful food absolutely incredible food such a variety and uh i think if we were just there on our own we probably wouldn't have had so many doors open to us it, it made it quite different so how did you research this trip um not very well uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh so yeah if you search on the internet for information on sea kayaking in south korea not a lot not a lot came up back then uh, maybe more does now but uh it, because it's a different alphabet and um, it, it, I don't have a keyboard for Korean, the Korean language, it's quite hard to search. If there is information, it's probably written in Korean. Uh, so that, that, that was quite difficult. The, the wind forecasting and models were all in Korean. So it's quite hard to understand what the kind of standard wind directions were and things like that. And the tidal information, again, we, we had kind of graphic pictures with colors that we could kind of work out from. Um, but it, it turned out to be an incredible sea kayaking venue uh, with 12-meter uh, tidal ranges, 
We had uh, 15 knots channels going on the southwest corner. Uh, amazing cliffs and caves and coastline. Um, really varied and lots to explore and to see along the way. Um, much more than we ex- anticipated. Did you, yeah. did you run across a lot of other paddlers along the way? Only once we kind of met up off the water. So we would be met um, in towns where there were clubs. They would come down and, and greet us and, and take us out for, for food. And yeah, we would socialize on the land. Uh, on the water, no, we didn't really sort of come across people paddling. Um, just just the, the kayaking monk. Is, so. the, is the club culture pretty vibrant there in terms of club paddling? Yeah, it was. Um, it, certainly up in uh, the capital, yeah, there was uh, a, a good number of paddlers up there. Uh, and I think I'm sure it's grow, grown since we were there because it is um, it is such a great environment to, to go out and explore. So aside from all the information uh, being on being in Korean, and you mentioned that it's, it's been difficult to research. I mean, that, you're the first person that I'd come across that had paddled uh, that coastline, even still. And so it's not one that you hear about very often, which is kind of why it captured my attention. And uh, outside of that, what other challenges did you face along the trip? <laughs> that and the military escort, I suppose. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the biggest uh, surprise to us was how cold it was. <laughs> oh. um, uh, we didn't expect that. We, we knew that um, I, I was busy teaching kayaking in the summer, so we would go in the winter. Uh, I think we were there in February time. But uh, I hadn't anticipated on the first night in the tent, it went down to minus 18. Yeah, when I picked up the tent pole, the pole froze to my hand in the morning. And, you know, that, that, that just blew me away with quite how low the temperature went. We had clear skies nearly all the time, but it was icy cold. It warmed up as we went further south, but uh, the first part was, was thick, thick fog really cold yeah quite a challenging environment probably one of the hardest navigational days um i've had was on the the very first day in thick fog um with the local i thought he was gonna tell us where to go (laughs) but um he was relying on me um he hadn't done the crossing that we were trying to do and it was as as thick as you could imagine and we had limited tidal information but we knew there was about four knots of flow in the water underneath us and exactly which direction it was going if we had to hit, we had to hit a small island. It was just, yeah, it was quite a challenging uh, first day when you haven't quite got your head into the map that you're using and the scales. Um, so yeah, there's a few few challenges. Um, we also had a the J- Japanese tsunami happened whilst we were on the water, which is not too far away from South Korea. Uh, we were pretty panicked at first, and that that when we didn't have a huge amount of information which side of the country that Japanese tsunami was on. Fortunately for us, it was on the far side of Japan and not on the coastline facing uh, South Korea. But uh, we certainly had a bit of a fright and it's quite dawn, yeah, quite eye-opening to, to see the video footage of that whilst we're on the trip and, and kind of thinking, wow, you know, that could have, could have quite easily been on the other side and come our direction. And yeah, um, that was quite, quite a shock. Yeah, it certainly could have been a trip changer for you there. Yeah, yeah, big surf. Yeah. <laughs> um, so knowing what you know now, would you do anything differently or how would you do it differently? Uh, no, I don't think I'd do anything differently. Um, maybe take a, a even more warmer stuff for the temperature. But um, other than that, no, I think our strategy actually ended up working out uh, with not, not telling anyone what we were doing until we got there, really. And then having the opportunity to do face-to-face meetings with the authorities to seek permission. 
and having the backing of the clubs was was vital to make it possible really um and uh no i i loved we loved having the the monk there and uh joining us out on the water yeah no i i'm so it's the, my favorite trip to talk about because it's just so different and uh, it was such an experience did you find the coastline more urban or rural um well it was quite rural uh, however we were made to stop at the towns we did stop in a couple of rural locations they sent the army down to meet us on one of those occasions but, uh, in general we were staying in the town so we were camping on concrete most nights um, and uh, rather than your standard sea kayak expedition where you pick your lovely spot in between the towns to camp the night we were uh, we were in the hustle and bustle uh, of a hard, busy harbour normally which had its uh, positives and negatives but it, it certainly added that extra twist to it all. So it was, um, it was, it was a rural coastline, very you know, lots of remote areas that we were paddling in. But where we were stopping was always there, yeah, was urban. All right. So there's a picture on the Kokatat website of you uh, carrying your boats on land. I don't know if you're familiar with the picture. It's uh, you pulling a cart. Looks like. Oh tree. yes, yeah, yeah. Well, tell us um, about the origin of that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's on um, the Madagascar expedition. Oh, okay. um, uh, so that's not in Korea, that one. But um, okay. yeah, that one's uh, out in Madagascar. And uh, I was paddling with a local there again, actually. And uh, it hadn't quite worked out that time. And we needed to get him to a, a road. And uh, the only way we could do it was by those tuk-tuk kind of um, <laughs> carts. And uh, we, we put the three-piece kayaks onto that and walked for uh, half a day to get to the nearest road to get him out. Um, so yeah. So you use three piece kayaks? Did you use them on both trips? Yeah, um, use them on uh, Madagascar and um, on South Korea. Uh, it's the easiest way to get a boat out that you know um, what it's like and how it's going to perform. Speaking of Madagascar, tell us a little bit, little bit about Madagascar. Um, yeah, so this was um, the, an expedition after I'd gone round Ireland, where I just felt like now I wanted to move away from the fundraising and I wanted to do something for myself that. So that no one else had done before. Uh, I'd heard people talk about Madagascar and no one had attempted it. So I thought, oh, do you know what? I, I think it's worth a try. It, it was a, a big challenge. I, 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 we took it on and within a few days of paddling, we realized that this was going to be really tough, uh, mainly down to heat and the fact that the coastline wasn't actually as interesting as we were hoping it to be. Very straight, sandy beaches for, for, for many miles. In fact, there was a a 750 kilometer beach that was perfectly straight which had dumping surf on it and um it was a case of land launching out through the surf and um staying on the water for 12 hours and then landing at the end of the day um after and it looked like you hadn't moved anywhere the beach looked identical so there was all sorts of challenges with it I ended up deciding to do it in two legs um so coming back the following year after doing two months of paddling uh, coming back on exactly the same date a year later to finish off the trip it, uh, it I had various things various factors that meant that I didn't manage to complete it so it was a, an attempt and an incredible experience with four months of paddling out in Madagascar but it was it wasn't the trip I was hoping for um, trying to you know circumnavigate but wow it was such a, a rich trip again of, of experiences that I, I don't regret it at all yeah well 750 kilometers of a a straight, not changing beach. Uh, sounds brutal. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, I, I can seeing the same thing every day. I mean, that's that's one of the nice things about sea kayaking and, and many of the locations that you choose is that you've got variety, you've got something different. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, you know, it, it, you think it, I think we had a vision, um, and when I do a talk on this trip, I kind of show a picture of uh, one of the days where you've got your beautiful coral reef underneath the kayaks and little islands, you know, located off the coastline, and you kind of think of Madagascar tropical, and that's what we're going to get most of the way around. But actually, that was you know a couple of days of paddling, and the rest of it was kind of just a sandy beach which was beautiful it was you know absolutely incredible but it was it didn't change huge amounts on the way around transition back to uh, south korea for just a moment sorry to bounce back and forth between the two um but you just you mentioned it so i thought i had to ask <laughs> um, yeah so speaking of south korea would you do it again um I don't know if I'd ever do a, a trip again. Maybe I could consider around Britain again, but South Korea, um, I think I'd like to, there's so much in the world to explore and to experience that I, I just feel as though there's just too much to do <laughs> uh, to go back to the same place again. Um, of course, I'd love to be back out there and paddling um, and, and meet the people again um, years on, but uh, I think there's too much to, to go and explore. All right. So what's next? Well, yeah. So in terms of expeditions, I haven't got anything um, on, on the pipeline at the moment. Um, I've been running a, a children's uh, charity for, for the last couple of years and obviously setting up uh, online sea kayaking that people may have come across and been focusing my time on that and as well as the family. So uh, I'm, I'm about to make some changes there and I'm going to be working uh, full time on the online sea kayaking. And uh, hopefully we'll have opportunity to get away and to, to to explore a bit more moving forward. All right. All right. So if you could pick one place in the world where you could go, where would that be? <laughs> oh, that's such a, such a challenging question. <laughs> such a challenging question. It's difficult. Yeah. I mean, if it's for an expedition, I absolutely love going out to Iceland. Um, I've run lots of expeditions with groups out there. It's such a amazing place to go paddling um amazing wildlife really remote um incredible geography you know it's uh yeah a great place to go so i'd have to if i had to pick somewhere off the top of my head it would be it would be there i just had an interview recently with uh, vega gretarstodridge yeah, yeah well, well pronounced <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah I, so, I know her well yeah so yeah um, so online sea kayaking. So congratulations on starting online sea kayaking and, uh, and congratulations on its growth. You mentioned that you're taking that full time. So that's great to hear. So tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah. So, um, this was something that, uh, started work on quite a few years ago, um, filming, um, and then we launched it, uh, well, it's about a, about two years ago now, and uh, yeah, it's an online platform for as a resource for paddlers, sea kayakers to to access um, online courses for all sorts of different skills, from rescues to just maneuvering kayaks, staying upright, and braces and recovery strokes, and uh, yeah, it's a growing library. So um, people that subscribe every time we we release a new course, that ends up in the library, and they've got access to that. So yeah, it's a it's kind of a new way of um, of having a resource to, to, to develop your sea kayaking um, skills and to work alongside what you do out on the water. So giving you exercises um, to, to try out with paddling partners and, and so on. So what drove you to start that project? I just saw it as something that, that was missing, that, that online learning was something that people are starting to a, a, a adopt more and more. 
I could see that uh, there were other sports using it and um, and perhaps it was something that would work really well for, for kayaking as well. It, you know, there's an opportunity for paddlers to, that are subscribers to ask questions, to write comments below each video to and then to join the kind of community of, of learners and be more than just a, a DVD that you buy and you watch at home. You know, this is something that can be... Uh, uh, more of a, a, a platform for learning um, and um, as a community than it is and, and getting feedback um, than, than just watching a DVD. So there's an interactive component to it then? Yeah, so uh, we, we regularly get questions and comments um, and give feedback and kind of help people guide them on their, their learning journey really. All right, so how has that project grown and changed for you over time? Well, obviously, with the the global pandemic um, and the timing we just released before that, that happened, um, and uh, there was a huge switch into online learning as being a recognised thing and uh, something that everyone was willing to accept, given the scenario that we were all thrown into, um, has obviously helped us no end to to kind of get the word out to and um, for people to see this as something that that works. And now more and more people are getting back out on the water and kind of it seems to be spreading the word that it, they're finding it useful and a, a good resource. And the more we're seeing um, people subscribing. So that's why we're, we're putting more time into it now. And um, we can create the, the rest of the courses that we've got planned um, and get more content on there. So when you started it, um, did you expect it to grow in the way that it has been growing? We hoped it would, yes. Um, so um, I've been working with James Stevenson on this. Um, we've known each other since university days, and uh, we 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 put some forecasts down, and and we've been we've been doing well to to hit what we were hoping for. Um, I think perhaps we were being really you know optimistic at first, but actually it, it, because of the pandemic, we've been hitting what we've been hoping to, and and um, it's it's gone to, to how we we really really could have wished it to. So. So we're recording this at the very last few days of July 2021. And how, what's the size of the library at this time? Well, we've got, um, oh, at the top of my head, I think it's seven different courses. There's over, I think it's just around 20 hours of, of content on there. There's, uh, yeah, we've got navigation and planning. We've got surf, surfing a sea kayak. We've got paddling in tide rescues, uh, staying upright, ruddering masterclass. So there's, yeah, there's quite, quite a lot of content um, on there and you wouldn't be able to watch it all straight. There's, it's quite, quite detailed. So it's, it suits kind of watching a couple of lessons uh, in an evening and, uh, and then coming back to it once you've been out in the water and tried some of the exercises. So um, it would, yeah, there's quite a lot on there now. So there's short, uh, short exercises and designed to give you uh, content that you can use right away, then go apply that on the water and then come back and get feedback on that, it sounds like. Yeah, that's, that's right. So um, they can uh, watch a, a course, might, you know, Staying Upright has 40 odd uh, lessons um, around and each of those lessons covers an individual aspect. So there might be, uh, there's, a, there's a series of lessons on the low, low brace and then we'll break that down into the blade angle into one lesson. Um, and the body, what's happening with the body in another, and you can look at those independently. Some people choose to watch them back to back and then go out in the water. Um, some people watch them then one at a time and then go on the water in between. It, it really it depends on how you how you work as a learner as well. Um, um, I think we've got quite a, a variety of users from from quite beginner to quite advanced coaches that are using it to develop their coaching techniques and look at um, the details of different strokes. Great resource all around then. 
Yeah, hope so. Um, one uh, one other question I'm going to get back again. Um, equipment. So in terms of equipment that you use on your trips, you mentioned the, the three-piece boats. Um, what other equipment do you generally rely on? Well, I'm a Kokotat sponsored paddler, so I'm generally wearing Kokotat these days and have done for, for many years. Um, yeah, I mean, it all it does change per trip. So, you know, there's such a contrast between the Madagascar, which was paddling in a rash vest and uh, hot water, hot tropical paddling, uh, totally different to South Korea where we were in, you know, heavy down sleeping bags and uh, down trousers when we're off the water and so on. So it was, um, yeah, it does really, really massively depend on the trip, different trips that have been doing. All right. Any other particular camping gear or anything that you uh, rely on? Oh, my love at the moment is the um, Marika uh, pan that you uh, that you can make pancakes on on an expedition. I think that's an absolutely fantastic bit of kit on an open fire. Um, a, uh, yeah, I'll probably won't ever not take that out with me now <laughs> your best or favorite piece of kit under 100 pounds best piece of kit under 100 pounds oh that's a difficult one i'd say uh a tow line <laughs> uh simply because it's the one piece of kit i just don't, don't get out on the water without and if it's it, even if i'm out on my own it's something that i'll i'll have with me um for rescuing others or if i'm on a you know a big expedition and, and it all goes a bit wrong then i can clip myself to the boat it's just that key bit of kit that makes uh, can make a huge difference so you know i'll, I'll go with tow line all right and it makes a great clothesline if you need that as well. <laughs> Multi-sounded, yeah. yeah. So, Simon, how can listeners reach you if they've got additional questions? Yeah, no problem at all. Well, they can reach me through online sea kayaking. Go to the website, which is um, onlineseakayaking.com. Got all the contact details on there. And, um, yeah, be happy to be in touch with anyone that's got any questions. So, uh, one final question as well that I have for you, and that is, Simon, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? Um, that's a good question. I think, uh, really, uh, someone who's been massively influential on my sea kayaking has been Nigel Dennis. Um, if he, you know, the original email I'd sent to him back in 2001, where I said, um, I've never been in a sea kayak and I'd like to paddle around Britain. Can you help? He went, yeah, sure. No problem. And then when I, you know, he, he took me out for a, a week up there, uh, he didn't say, you know, you can't do this because you, you haven't been sea kayaking. He said, yeah, I'm sure you can do it. Just take your time. And, and uh, it, yeah, and he helped um, massively and then offered me work. And, uh, yeah, I've always used his boat. So it would have to be Nigel. I think he's just um, been a, a major influence on the, the sea kayaking world. A couple of other folks that have recommended Nigel as well. I'm and, sure. Uh, and certainly uh, you and I will talk a little bit offline and we'll make the opportunity to get a connection with Nigel and, and try and get him on the show here as well. That'll be fantastic. Good. So, Simon, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been wonderful hearing about your trip to uh, uh, South Korea and learning a little bit about your Madagascar trip and that long 750-kilometer uh, straight beach. Uh, I guess that I know you've got many other fantastic expeditions as well, and uh, maybe we'll have a chance to talk through some of those in the future for you as well. Brilliant. Thank you. It's been, been, been a pleasure. All right. Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, power to the paddle, 
is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit PaddlingExercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. A paddling monk, a military escort, and a tsunami. Three things you don't normally encounter on a sea kayak trip. It was a pleasure talking with Simon about South Korea and getting to explore a part of the world that we don't hear about much from a sea kayaking perspective. And online sea kayaking is a great resource full of outstanding training to help you improve your paddling. So check it out. I'll have a link to uh, online sea kayaking in the show notes. For our next episode, we're going to feature an adventurer with one of the most incredible lists of experiences you've ever heard. We're going to be talking with John Turk. John is an author, scientist, and adventurer full of stories about unbelievable polar expeditions. And we're going to talk with John about some pretty deep stuff that helped him find his power to keep fueling the expedition fire. As always, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.